You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey everyone, welcome back. Thanks for joining me for episode 11. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Pac-Man fog, specifically species in the Ceratophrys genus. And with me tonight is my guest, Pat Klein, who is the owner and proprietor of Frog Depot. Hey, Pat, what's going on? How you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm good. I know you're fighting off a bit of a cold, so we're going to try and, try and get as much out of you as we can tonight before... Uh... <laughs> so. Before my voice decides to give out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone give big shout out to Pat for, um, you know, really giving it his all tonight. Um, All right. So, Pat, tell us about yourself. How did you get involved with frogs and what led you to start Frog Depot? Uh, Well, it it all started. I used to do a lot of leopard geckos. Uh, We owned a company called Luxurious Leopards, and I did that for, oh, God, 16 16, 17 years from when I was in my teens all the way up. And I uh, had a lot of fun with that. And then I just started keeping dart frogs kind of as a, a side thing in the facility with the, with the leopard geckos. I just really enjoyed them. And I'm, I'm very much so a Tinctoris, uh, Aratus, Luke and uh Trebless, you know, fan and like the bigger stuff of the, the dart frogs. Uh, and that section just kind of kept growing because I just really, really enjoyed them uh and eventually i became uh, allergic to mealworms as a lot of people in the gecko hobby uh, have been in the past and, and are currently really so yeah it's really nasty it's uh respiratory issues can't breathe have emergency inhalers and it just got to the point where it was too much um as much as i loved the leopard geckos i didn't love the health problems that came with it so at that point we formulated uh Dart Frog Depot, which I'm sure probably sounds familiar to a few people. We did Dart Frog People, uh, yeah, uh, Dart Frog Depot for a few years. Uh, I think it was three or four years till I got to the Pac-Mans, and uh, and we still did Dart Frogs. Uh, I've always had Dart Frogs to some degree, but it became a you know the name didn't make sense anymore. We didn't do just Dart Frogs, um, which is why about three four years ago we changed the name to the Frog Depot. Uh, to obviously include the more species that we were working with and not kind of pigeonhole um, to the people that, hey, this guy's just doing dart frogs, which is, it's not the case anymore. Uh, so it's it's been a long journey, but, they, you know, I've been doing these, the frogs now for a while uh, and really having a blast. Cool. That's interesting about the about mealworm allergies. I've I, I've never heard about that before. That's pretty, that's pretty wild, actually. I mean, I've... Um... You know, I, I go on and I, my little side tangents about arachnids, but um, a lot of people I know in the in the tarantula community, they actually develop a sensitivity to the urticating hairs that New World tarantulas have. And it's yep. interesting because I, I never would have thought that you could develop, you know, an allergy or a sensitivity to mealworms. I mean, w- what is it about the mealworms? Is it, I mean, is it the like the brand, the bedding? Is it the the exoskeleton? It's the frost. It's, yeah, it's basically the sheds and the frost, aka the you know the poop feces in there and it becomes aerosatized very easily because keep in mind when you're doing leopard geckos the extent that i was doing them which we were going through about thirty thousand mealworms a week um and you're unpacking thirty thousand mealworms a week it's it's a lot of exposure and it just it, you know we did them i did them for over a decade and never had an issue dealt with mealworms had no problems uh and then it just started up slowly and it just got to the point where i was wearing a painter's mask in a facility and it was just really uncomfortable. Um, and in the frog world, a lot of frog people can 
relate to like bloodworm allergies. It's the same deal. I shouldn't say frog. It's more more along the lines of the newt world. Um, obviously, Pac-Man frogs with bloodworms is just why I bring it up. But um, I know there's individuals in the newt world which can't really um, work with newts anymore, at least not with uh, gloves, because the, the allergen to the bloodworm. That's interesting. I mean, it's funny because you don't really consider stuff like that. But um, I actually have a sensitivity to grain mites. So when I get a really oh, old, I'm the same way. Really? Okay. So I I, I, I get, get a, real itchy. Yeah, me too. And I've I've you know I've kind of grown out a bit of a beard the past couple of months. I mean, I always had one, but if my if I'm you know if I'm if I got a real short beard, my face is shaved. I don't notice it so much. But like I open up an old culture, and I'll just kind of just check it out. I can just I can like feel it. I know that they're not crawling on me, but it I just feels get, like it though. Yeah, it's really uncomfortable. Yeah, no, so, I, I, I told you the same way, and they're just, you can't see them, but you, you just, you know it's there, it drives you nuts. Yeah, yeah, Occup- occupational hazards, and it stinks because it's, I mean, you're right, it can really put you off to, you know, a whole part of a hobby that you really, really enjoy, just because your body physically can't handle it anymore. Exactly. Ugh. Interesting, interesting. Well, I mean, you, you kind of answered my question about um, what was coming next, in terms of about how you broadened out of dart well you well, obviously you, you segued out of leopard geckos and then you kind of broadened your you know your business model into including other frogs but why why you know uh frogs in the um the ceratophorus genus like why, why pac-man frogs and and tree frogs as you know why focus on them as opposed to dart frogs i really when i did the leopard geckos i really enjoyed the art that you created when you mix different genetics and different looks and and you kind of, it was like a Christmas every day. You went to the incubator. And that's exactly what it is with the Pac-Man species. Um, I decide to work with more than just your regular albinos and greens and, and strawberries. They're phenomenal. I love them. We produce them here by the thousands. But we also work with new stuff like the Infernos, and the Toxics, and the Samurais, and the Mutants, and um, the Black Eyed Genes. And it, you really get to kind of play around with all that and just create a frog that, that are like unrealistic. And it's just really, really cool to work with. And that's why I kind of fell in love with the Pac-Man. Uh, and there's a lot of twists and a lot of turns and a lot of things you have to learn. And genetics are nowhere near as easy as like ball pythons and leopard geckos as there are with frogs. It's, there's a lot to kind of figure out. Uh, there's a lot of hidden stuff here and there and, and a lot of, you know, breeders don't pay attention to it or it takes a long time to develop uh, a lot of this stuff which is why people don't see new morphs that come on the market every day mm-hmm. i mean i remember going back a while the the original morph i think it was uh i think it was the frog ranch that, that developed it was the albino morph and that yep. was really the first you know morph or i guess designer morph whatever you could call it that was available and I mean, they were extremely popular. I, mean, I remember being back in high school, and everybody wanted them. Yeah, they were insane, and Kim couldn't keep them uh, in stock at that time. And they were—they came with a very hefty price tag. They did. So everybody they who's did. paying twenty to thirty dollars now for an albino, it sure wasn't that back then. Yeah, they, especially for for an adult or, or a sub adult. Oh yeah, good luck finding one back then for that for any, <laughs> any price. I remember, I mean, this is, this was kind of under, I guess, nefarious conditions, but uh, I want to say about 96, I bought an adult, uh, an adult male pixie 
for 20 bucks cash out of a guy's car in a parking lot. Um, yeah. Uh, nowadays, a frog that size would fetch, what do, you, what do you think frog that size would fetch today? Oh, that price is majorly inflated. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've seen adult male pixies go from anywhere from three to 600. Um, you know, when we go up to the White Plains show, they're way higher price. Uh, Hamburg show, somewhere around 350. Um, they do eat a lot, so I will give it that. There's a lot of money invested in the food. True, true. Um, but if you feed the right things, I mean, pixies do grow very quickly. I don't think, I mean, to me, I want a female. Um, as a breeder, I'm more interested in the females than I am the males. But you don't ever see females, unfortunately, because everybody wants males. Yeah, they don't have that, that job of the hut kind of look to them. Everybody always wants males. They don't, but you know what? I find their behavior to be more pet-oriented. The, um, the males you know, or the I females? Re- the females. I got some real aggressive males, which, like, I you know, I just wouldn't want my kids going near the cage. I mean, if you ever looked in the mouth of one of those things, uh, it's not going to end well. So, and we, you know, we go to shows and we sell pixie frogs to, you know, I've sold pixie frogs to 12, 13, 14-year-olds. Obviously, their parents are there and they approve of it. And we tell them, you know, hey, this is going to be a frog the size of a dinner plate to give you stitches. And they just think it's funny. Um but I tend to like the females as far as personality, obviously, to be a little better, to be honest. Now, just in, in terms of like males and females, um, you know, for any of the listeners out there, how would you, how would you sex a male and female? Let's, well, well, pixies, I know it's difficult, but you know, you've got, um, the males will be large. To be males, honest with you. Well, I mean, the males will be larger. I should, I should have rephrased it. I'm sorry. I meant like as like as a juvenile. You can. Um, a, a lot of those guys, you know, and that, that is actually, it's an excellent question. It's probably the question I get asked the most all week is, can you sex your white tree frogs? Can you sex your pixies? Can you sex your Pac-Man? Uh, the answer to that is no. Um, when they're small froglets, you can't. And they'll ask you to take a, an educated guess, and you can't. It's a 50-50. You, you, you toss the coin. Um, anybody who says that they can sex a, a young froglet uh, it is, it's just that you're taking an educated guess. Um, because a lot of these guys, until they start maturing at, you know, depending on the species, four or five, six months, uh, where you could start telling the sex, you just can't do it. Now for an adult or a sub adult, I mean, how would you rely? Well, not necessarily reliably, but how would you reasonably sex say like, you know, an adult, any one of the Pac-Man species? Oh, I mean, honestly, I know, and this is, I am not bragging about this at all, but just by the sheer amount of Pac-Man I've raised now, I, I, I could take a good swing at like a month of age, two months of age by the food rate they're taking and just how they act. Uh, and different species are different. I mean, in Cranwell in particular, ornates are a little bit different because they're all fairly, very aggressive, good food eaters. Um, Cornuda are a little bit, um, difficult in far as sexing goes because they're, they're smaller species they're a little bit slower growing um but cranwells i mean i could generally tell at like three months and my whole back bin you know by how aggressively they want the food and how quick their growth rate is if it's a female or a male really but that's just thousands of them you know going through thousands of them i mean i know they produce really really i mean what's an average clutch size would you say it depends i mean it, it depends if it's a you know, first-time female or, um, you know, a mature female, which is bred a few times. 
depends how good the mail was. Um, I think a lot of people overlook the quality of males and how aggressive the male is at breeding because you can have a female that lays good, you know, 1,500, 2,000 eggs and the male just doesn't fertilize, doesn't do very well, and you end up with 100 tadpoles. Mm-hmm. So um, it's so all over the place. You can't even properly answer that question. You hope on average to get 1,000 to 1,200 eggs, but that's not always the case. It's not always automatic. Now, do you, I mean, do you have like certain males that you kind of rely on to be like the heavy hitters in your breeding operation as opposed to others? I mean, are there certain males that you might phase out of the breeding program altogether because they just generally don't produce the way others do? I have my favorites, um, which tend to be a little bit better at the amplexus and the breeding. But I follow a really strict guideline here of how often to breed the animals. So, you know, whether I love them or not, they're going to get a break. So, I mean, or I'm not going to have that animal for as as long as it sh- I should have that animal. So I don't really push them. I mean, I like when they come up in rotation because they're phenomenal animals to work with. But um, it doesn't, you know, I don't push them any more than, you know, a normal male should go or female. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I've heard a lot of different discussions about breeding, you know, Pac-Man's. I mean, we don't have to get into a tremendous amount of detail, but I mean, what's what's your breeding operation like? And by that, I mean, I've heard a lot of mm, armchair quarterbacks kind of say that it's really, really easy and there's really nothing that goes into it. But I mean, can you kind of, you know, set the record straight on what it's like to have a reasonably sized breeding operation for these frogs? Yeah, that's a great question, too. We get that a lot. And, you know, a blind squirrel will find a nut every once in a while. Can you breed... Um, Pac-Man, you know, out of your home or basement. Sure you can. If you're paying attention and you have the right setup and and uh, the cues, you could do it whether natural or hormonally. But the the problem is, you know, where are you going to get rid of all those animals? And, uh, there's so many little steps along the way that people tend to forget even exist until they get there. And that's not the point where you want to remember they exist. You don't want to have 800 mouths to feed, 1,000 mouths to feed, and, and go, oh, man, how am I going to house them? Oh, my electric bill's through the roof. Oh, man, I'm you know going through 20,000 crickets a week. Uh, you know, where's this money coming from? Because this is just a hobby. Now it's coming out of my normal paycheck. All little stuff like that. So when you're doing an operation, and I'm, uh, listen, I'm not the, the, by far the largest Pac-Man breeder in the country, so I can only imagine what, um, like, Frog Ranch, the Frog Father, what they're putting in overhead-wise of bills, they produce way more than we do. But for a regular hobbyist to do it, I think you really have to put a lot of thought behind it. You need a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of equipment. You can't just put everything in a 40-gallon aquarium and, and uh, you know, with a whisper filter on the back and say, yep, this is going to be great. It's going to be so easy. I'm going to get paid. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. Yeah, I, I've heard... You know, um, how how do I put this? Um, I've heard a lot of people say, I got back from an expo and um, I bought this frog from a breeder and now I'm having all these problems. And then I'll kind of say to people, well, not everyone is actually working with these frogs on an individual label and, uh, excuse me, on an individual level. And odds are you didn't get it from a breeder, but you got it from a distributor. So it's not like, you know... Mr. Jones up the street is, you know, breeding these as a, just like a little hobby operation. I mean, like you said, you're going to have thousands and thousands of mouths to feed. 
Exactly. And I, that's another question I get a lot. Oh, I, you know, I got this from the breeder across the room, you know, or at shows. And I'll make this extremely clear right now. There is, as far as Pac-Man breeders in the United States, you have myself, you have the Frog Ranch, obviously, you have the Frog Father, and you have uh, Ryan at Getting Shipping Exotics. Um, I'm not even going to mention Tom there for some reasons that aren't even worth getting into in this uh, episode because it's all negative. Well, but, we try we try know, to stay positive and yeah, you know. exactly, and that's why I'm not even. I don't want to talk about him um, for those reasons. People could look him up, but anyways, um, when when they're saying, "Oh, I bought it from a breeder," keep that in mind. There's only a breeder in California, Florida, Pennsylvania, and uh, Ryan's in the Midwest somewhere. I believe he's in Illinois. I might be wrong about that state, but um, that's it. So to see two of them at a show is damn near impossible since Frog Ranch and the Frog Father don't do shows. They've never done it. They don't want to do it. Um, so, you know, you got to really be careful when you're buying some of these frogs, uh, you know, third hand, especially adults, especially adults. Yeah, I've, I've had that discussion with quite a few people over the years. You know, well, I got it from a breeder. I said, no, you, I mean, look, let's, Call it what it is. There are a lot of people out there who do want to make. I mean, everybody wants. Everybody needs to make a living. You know, no arguing that. But um, you know, when you have the misrepresentation of something, saying, "Oh, I, I've read these last month, and I know, like, all right, I, I'm walking past it an expo. I, I know you, you, you're lying to this person. You, you're full of it." So, I mean, I mean, again, you want to deal with people who are, I mean, even on a distributor level, people who are being honest. You know, what I mean, like, all right, well. We got it from a good source, and you know we want to know that everything is just is, is is legit. So, me having a conversation with you right now, we're being straight with each other, is so different from, you know, some you know young beginner at an expo and then being sold that line of oh, I bred these in my basement last month, and we know that that's very, very, very unlikely. Right. I mean, does it happen? I'm sure there's other people who bred pack there. You know, absolutely, but. Not on these type of scale. The odds of you getting a Pac-Man at a online place or, or a show that isn't from one of us four is really, really slim. Really, really slim. Yeah. And obviously, you know, quality is something that you, you know, you're going to want to pay for and you're going to want to deal with someone who's in the business if you're going to ask questions. Well, that's the funny part. It's actually ironic. You're going to spend less money buying from a breeder than you are buying from uh, a third party. True, true. If you look at our prices online, they are insanely low compared to your your average prices out there retail-wise. Because I want people to come interact with the breeders, have a better experience, and, and just get away from issues. Yeah, I mean, it's like that old adage, you know, if, if, you, if you don't want to get a bad apple, you don't go to the barrel, you go to the tree. Yeah. And I think sure. that one of the things that, you know, people have to understand is that, you know, just like everything else in life, you get what you pay for. And if you want, you know, a, a healthy quality animal that's going to have the best care, you're going to want to go right to the source. That's your that's your best bet. And, and I, you know, frogs, salamanders um, are probably one of the more tricky uh, things on uh, living things on the market as far as the reptile industry goes. Uh, you could have perfectly healthy ones sold, and you, you, there's not much room for error with a lot of these species. And I just for me, I'd rather take go to the horse who sold it to me, who made it. 
and ask questions and be able to troubleshoot things and figure it out because it's not always going to be perfect. It's a frog. It's there. You know, things aren't perfect with leopard geckos or fear dragons or ball python. Things happen. They're living animals. But I, I just from comparing the leopard gecko industry to the frog industry and you know, issues with people with their husbandry and other things like that. There's way more with frogs. It's just not as much room for error. I mean, one of the things that I noticed and um, in my interactions with other people, I, I try not to, uh, I try not to be um, overly harsh, but I've noticed that a lot of beginners go right for the different Pac-Man species. And right off the bat, a lot of them have problems. And I mean, what do you think about like the attitude towards captive husbandry. I mean, are there any recommendations that you would make that you think people would have better success at keeping them, especially when they're young, when they're froglets? Yes. Um, and I'm going to plug the YouTube channel here for one second. We do a lot of videos on our care on our YouTube channel. So if you want to see it firsthand, go over there, check out the videos. Um, but one of the, the biggest issues that I find, the mistakes that happen uh, with people who are new that are coming in and getting it is a have the wrong type of substrates. They have um, the incorrect heating. That's a big one. These are tropical frogs. You cannot keep them in your air-conditioned house at 68 to 71 and expect them to eat. Uh, so that's that's one of the big ones. So you go, oh, my Pac-Man's not eating. Number one, you're bugging the heck out of him for the first few days he's there, trying to shove something in his mouth with a tongue. You'll be fine. Let him settle in. Let him relax. Some eat right out of the cup. Some don't. Some want to take a week uh, if, the, if the conditions are right. But the conditions have to be right. They, they have very simplistic requirements, but the heat is one of them. That heat needs to be uh, on, the, on the hot side somewhere 82 to 84, and they could thermoregulate on the other side down to, you know, 73, 74. I keep mine at 75 because my room's a little warmer than everything we do. Uh, and, of course, they need a humidity source. They need a very shallow water dish, and, and they need the humidity of at least 70%. Uh, and that's that's the kicker. And they got to have food that they're going to eat. You know, they they do like live things. Babies tend to really do well with large crickets. They go nuts over night crawlers. Um, that's my go-to for any kind of problem feeders. And I even I have all my grow outs on night crawlers for first few months. They get it mixed in with other stuff too. But the night crawlers, they love them. So if you have a problem feeder, that's a big go-to. Uh, for me, they're really cheap to get. You can cut them in chunks for all different size Pac-Man or keep them as a, a, you know, a full night crawler for the bigger ones. Um, and they also, we carry many different types of uh, non-live foods now, which wasn't available uh, as frequently earlier on in the hobby. Now you could get the, the samurai food, which is basically you can mix with water, uh, make a little uh, kind of clayish type ball. They like that. They really like that. Uh, and if you happen to have an animal that's not doing very well, I don't ever recommend force feeding per se, but you could syringe feed with that by making it a little bit more liquidy. Uh, if you're having issues with that, you can put it on their mouth and they'll, they'll swallow it then. Meat pie, Herpashi's meat pie is another good one, and grub pie. All three of those um, we carry for that exact reason for those people who don't want live, animal, live crickets, um, crickets or roaches or any of that stuff. Some people can't have it where they're at. They could have those types of foods. Now, do you think that, like the, um, the ability to feed, you know, like like a uh, like a premix 
type of food, like you said, like rapashi or samurai. I mean, do you think that that gets more people into the hobby because they're kind of deterred by having to keep, I mean, I keep, I keep a fairly large dubia colony and I have no problem feeding them off. Everyone in my house is comfortable with it, but I know a lot of people really squeamish when they come to bugs and especially frogs. I mean, they're one of the few species that will take, um, I guess, you know, non, non-live prey like this. Pardon me. No, go ahead. But yeah, a, a lot of them, uh, I would say that we do get clients that are now able to keep these frogs because of that. They can't get into the tree frogs because that's not actually, that's going to work very well. They're big cricket eaters and a couple other things, but it has to be live. But, um, yeah, this, these non-live in, insect diets work really well. Now, in terms of, I know you kind of mentioned substrate briefly before, but like, what's what's your recommendation for a good substrate? It used to be cocoa cocoa fiber, um, and you know we have a lot of frogs to kind of play around with things, and we know a certain amount. And this is this is going to sound really bad, but it's it's the breeders behind the scenes, like your loss in a spawn. Um, not all of them are going to come out like gun-ho for life. You're going to have some weaker ones, and you obviously want everything to be as perfect when they come out so as many can survive as they can. And what I was finding with the coconut fiber is we were, we were losing more than I would have liked to. And, and my background, um, when I used to work a full-time job and not do just this, is uh, a, a certified vet tech. So I did exotic medicine at a zoo for over a decade. Really? So necropsies and... Um, histopaths were something we did in every animal and I took that over into the frogs. So every frog that would pass away I would do a necropsy on it because I want to see what's going on, what I can do better. And I found out that almost 100% of these little froglets that were dying were dying because they had this coconut fiber impacted in their colon. It was, it, you can imagine how small colon is on a, on a, frog, a frog coming out of the water. So as they were eating, they were taking little bits of this, this cocoa fiber in their mouth every single time, and it just was was able to be passed. And that wouldn't happen with all of them, but it was happening with enough of, enough of them that I wasn't comfortable with it. So I've tried different things, sphagnum moths, just water, paper towels. And, you know, there's issues with all of those. Um, just water is very labor-intensive. you got to change it a couple times a day so they don't tox out from the bacteria and from the feces and the urine that they're going in the water, you uh, you know, spag also has a, a impaction risk. Uh, and finally, I, I keep a couple ball pythons to play around with. Um, so we have the the cocoa fiber uh, chip, so, which is a little bit larger, obviously. And I tried that because it holds really good humidity. And wouldn't you know, I haven't lost one, not one, to impaction since I switched over five months ago. That's interesting so, because you'd think that I mean. Uh, it, it's very easy for people to, you know, um, how do I put this? Um, certain times an idea that sounds like it makes sense will kind of catch fire and go and become the norm because people are always deterring others from using uh, the larger chips as, you know, as substrate because, well, the risk of impaction. But, I mean, if you're doing necropsies on frogs and you're seeing impaction due to cocoa fiber, which is kind of the preferred substrate at the moment, that's that's really interesting, actually. Yeah, and the kicker is when the frog gets big enough to actually take that cocoa fiber or the cocoa chip into its mouth and cause an impaction, you got to switch before that. So gotcha. the time period that I'm talking about is from day 
you know, zero out of the water to about two months of age. Then they then they need to get switched over. But to be honest with you, I have some larger frogs that I've kept on it now for six months just to kind of test the theory. No issues. I've actually literally seen them get a piece of in their mouth, take their hands and swipe it out. They don't they didn't like the feel of it. Hmm. So I wouldn't do I wouldn't do it all the time. Like I, I would I switched to cocoa fiber because I don't like playing Russian roulette, um, but I definitely like to see what works and what doesn't work. And and we did cocoa fiber for a long time, but uh, like I said, there there was a a loss that I didn't that I didn't feel that should have happened, and that's why we researched it a bit more. I mean, I I had a lot of luck with cypress mulch going back in the early two thousands, but mm-hmm. the the supplier that I had um, went out of business. It was an agricultural supply nearby, and they just they went out of business. So I didn't have access to it anymore. I mean, I used to be able to get really, really big bags of cypress mulch that I would kind of use in all my amphibian enclosures. And then it's, you know, not a go anymore. So I ended up getting on the cocoa fiber trip as well. What do you think about like, um, I know in, in Asia, Pac-Man frogs are like a really, really big thing and they keep them on, um, almost like a, like a, like a foam, like a, like a foam they mattress. They do two like... different methods. Yeah. They do the foam. Uh, and I've also seen, I don't know the name of the product, they're little black beads, little black balls. I don't, I'm not 100% sure what they're made out of, so I can't really comment on that. I mean, my guess is that they're small enough in diameter. I only see it in, in pictures with the big ones. So they're adults I see on it. And so I'm guessing it's big enough for them to pass. It's not a big issue. Um, but the foam we do have here, I have tried the foam. Um, and it's okay. But again, it's high labor because it is a breeding ground for bacteria and mold if you don't take that out and, you know, clean it a lot. And that's fine if you have, well, and it's not, it's not very pretty to look at either. You know, if you want to do a nice tank, obviously foam's not for you. It is, but if you have only a couple of them and you, and that's all you have to do, it's not that bad. If you have thousands of them, uh, it's a nightmare. I, I can imagine. Um what uh, we've heard, you know, in the U.S., I've heard, I mean, I'm not tremendously into the Pac-Man hobby, but um, the Samurai line. I know on some of like the, the boards and the forums, the Samurai line is always kind of like a, um, uh, like the Holy Grail or almost like mythical. I mean, can you, can you tell us about it and kind of the story behind it? Yeah, yeah. So I'll tell you what I know. I've been working with the Samurai line now for about four years. Uh, and you'll hear the word blue attached to it as well a lot i don't i do not like to use the word blue attached with it i will not every every one of our animals that you see for sale does not say that might say teal but the reason why that's a big problem is because there was an enhancer that was given to the frogs which would cause them to be artificially blue so that as they grew they actually turned green so people were paying a premium price for a frog, which really wasn't what you were going to get. They would be sometimes like a seafoam green or, you know, some would just be green, just green. Um, and people were spending hundreds of dollars on these animals. So, but the reason why I chose to work with it was because it, it does do a lot of crazy stuff. Uh, it is the key to your phantoms, your mutants, uh, all this other weird random stuff that comes out and you know four years later i'm still trying to figure out every different avenue that comes out of them and every time there's a samurai spawn it's always cool 
they do have a different look than regular greens. They're not, you know, they're not just regular greens. They have a, a different appearance to them. I wouldn't call them blues. Um, and every spawn's a little bit different depending what you pair it with. But like I said, it is the key to doing some wicked stuff. And I think a lot of our new combos in the years to come are going to be spawned from, from samurai stuff. Now, do you have a lot of variation in, in each clutch? Like, let's just say out of a clutch of 2,000, do you have a lot of different phenotypes that show up? Uh, depends on the pairing. Um, like, and it's it's so freaking weird. For the first time, I was able to do mutant to mutant earlier in the year. And you would think mutant to mutant would produce some an insane clutch. A clutch. Yeah, there's the leopard gecko side of me. An insane spawn. <laughs> I, I, I know, um, I, I should be saying that myself. I'm I'm the host of this cast, and I keep saying clutch. You're right, Spawn is right. It's a, Yeah, you know what, old habits die hard, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so you would think it'd be crazy. Well, the reality of it is, I think I got two mutants out of, uh, there was like 400 that came out, and the rest were all green. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. And, you know, I took a long time to get there, because I did my outcrosses, the mutants, I wanted to make them stronger. Um, they're known to have some issues with the uh, confirmation of the jaws, things like that. So I really wanted to put some time into them before, you know, just go ahead and try to make as many mutants as we possibly could. And it turns out when I bred the regular samurai male, which wasn't even a, a mutant, I bred it to a, a simple tan. I got like 20 different mutants. The toxic line arose from that. We had like 40 different toxic animals. Uh, and it was just like every animal was different. So you don't know. We're still there's still a lot to learn. It's it's wild I and mean, it's interesting how, you know, it went from, you know, they only had the albino morph, you know, way back when, and now we have so many different choices. I mean, do you think that the samurai line is going to be like the way of the future? Like people, there's going to be more of a demand for all different morphs, kind of way the. I hate to draw parallels to the reptile hobby, but it's going to kind of be inevitable. But when ball python morphs kind of took off. Do you think that people are going to have that same kind of desire to own a lot of these different morphs now that they're becoming more available? Yes. Oh, oh absolutely. Um, just by going through the, the people that I talk to on a daily basis, our clients, and uh, and the questions that we get, people are far more interested uh, in in getting that stuff. It's kind of cool to watch the the individual who came in and bought that albino or that, that green, and now they want to they want to move up the chain and they want something a little different. So yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of interest for newly developed morphs. Now, which species is the samurai? Is the samurai line? Is that Cranwelli or Ornata? Cranwelli. It is. Okay. Okay. Yeah. There's not very many, um, morphs for Ornata at all. Uh, you have your dragon wings, you have your high reds. I think there's a couple other things, uh, in the works, but you know, not, not like Cranwelli and, you know, Cornuda, you have color phases. You don't really have an albino or things like that. You have your green, your tricolor, uh, your tans, and then there's some really cool uh, reddish Cornudas around. Uh, and talks of a blue Cornuda, a teal Cornuda. I don't know how real that is. I've never seen a picture, but um, there's a lot of stuff I think you're going to see in the next two, three years. Now, of the se- which species are you actively involved with now? I know that there's about there's a few more that have been added to captivity. I know it was um, uh, what was it from Brazil? It was uh, it's Arita. 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 Yep. Brazilian horn frogs, Aritas. We we do keep those. We had our first spawn, which we attempted about a month ago. It was a failed spawn, but we're getting in the game. Um, ornates. We have bred. We do obviously breed Cranwelli. We have bred 
uh, regular canoes. We have bread fantasy frogs here. Um, the reason I kind of steer away from some of that stuff is because it's already really covered. You know, Sam at the Frog Ranch does a phenomenal job with that stuff, and he helps supply us, and, you know, we'll supply him with a few things. And it doesn't make sense to have a whole bunch of breeders breeding the same thing if the market doesn't demand that amount of animals. Now, are there differences in care? I mean, a certain species more? I mean, can you kind of get into some of the... Yeah, cornudas are not for the beginner. I know we get, and I, I've actually turned away people from selling to them because it's, it's, it's just not for your first time Pac-Man frog. They can be a little bit more touchy with eating. They're smaller. So there's not a lot of wiggle room if something goes wrong. Um, so that, that would be my, my furthest to steer away from, uh, Arita would be my next one. They're not horrible, but they are definitely a step up from your ornate and Cranwell's Cranwells would actually fall next for me um, because they, they, they're fairly easy, but they can be tricky at times. Ornates are my number one easiest. I, I've never had problems with ornates, to be honest with you. They, the things will eat my finger if I let them. <laughs> I mean, what are some common problems that you think beginners have with, with um, say, uh, I mean, with, with each species on a, on, a, on a certain level? Like, let's just say that you start off as a beginner and you do get a cornuda. What are some issues that you might encounter? Inhabitants, they don't want to eat. Um, they don't have. They're, they're, they're specific frog feeders in the wild, so they're not going to be as apt to eat a whole ton of different foods like your Cranwell eye or ornate. You know, anything near their mouth, they're going to generally eat. So, you know, we try to get them on crickets as soon as we can get them on crickets, but they'll also eat small fish, which a lot of people don't have access to that size fish. They're tiny, um, and they require a lot of patience when you're there feeding them for the first time or two and you might be sitting there for 20 minutes taking a break coming back to it so you get them on a regular schedule uh and even then you know i've known very experienced keepers that we've sold cornuda to that have lost them so they're they're not you know they're not my go-to for people i did actually have one i acquired a a, a large juvenile uh, at an expo a while back and i didn't the same thing i didn't have luck with it it was very, very temperamental when it came to eating. Um, it never really acclimated well. It wouldn't, and uh, you know, of course, this was this was going back quite a few years. But of course, I had the seller. Oh, this thing is it's it's eating like crazy, and, and I was like, uh, okay. And it was I got probably it. a wild caught that wasn't even dewormed right off the boat. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, they like it a little warmer. There's a tip for you guys keeping cornuda. Um, they definitely like it. You know, if you're talking Cranwall at 84, they like it up at 88. Yeah, 80, upper 80s. They're they're a little bit different in that case. Now, what's your preferred heat source? Would you say I use? I have actually converted all my rack systems over that we use for leopard geckos for Pac-Man frogs. That works excellent. So we use FlexWatt. Obviously, it's on the bottom of all of our racks. It works very well. Now, do you ever have issues with thermal burns? I mean, obviously, you'd recommend that someone would use a Redistat or something. No, we get that a lot. People come over and be like, oh, this Facebook page said we can't put our heat mat on the bottom. Yeah, you can. You can put your heat mat on the bottom. you got to keep it on a thermostat. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's, it, a lot of it's common sense. Uh, obviously, all of our racks are on thermostats. I've never had uh, – I had one accident where a thermostat did malfunction. I lost a few adults. But that's over like, you know, 20 years altogether. I'm talking leopard geckos in this combined. And that was obviously there was no, nobody's fault. 
it made an error. It was an issue with the thermostat where a fuse went wrong. But, um, yeah, as long as you're, you're using the thermostat, you're fine with them. I never had thermal burns. I mean, I think that's also, that's a good point is a lot of people, uh, especially beginners, they get sold, you know, uh, you know, UTH that's not necessarily the right size or whatever. And I mean, I put money into using good thermostats. No, I don't use any of that rheostat junk. That's like 10 you, bucks. You know what drives me nuts? You know, and my, one of my biggest things drives me nuts. Shoot. Uh, and I don't mean to rant about customers, but here guys listening, cause this drives me absolutely bonkers. You buy the frog. You have the setup, you got everything right, at least you think you do, and then you call with problems and, you, and they go, okay, can you help me troubleshoot this? And I ask you what the temperature is, and there's a long pause because you don't know. That you wouldn't believe the amount of individuals who do not have a temperature and humidity gauge, which are very cheap, and to me that is a standard. If you're going to keep reptiles and amphibians you need a temperature and humidity gauge. You need to be able to know where those where those numbers are at, because there's no way to gauge if you're giving proper husbandry. And that literally happens six out of ten troubleshooting calls. They have no idea. So a little five dollar thermostat, or not thermostat, I apologize, digital thermometer would, would be able to gauge if you're right, you're wrong. Who knows? But I don't like I don't like guessing. I mean, I keep a temp gun in my room, and or I just kind of yeah, I just make it a habit yeah. to kind of go around. But I think that really more importantly is just is getting a good thermostat. I have um, my dog frogs. Obviously, their their temperatures, their husbandry is going to be a little bit different because I'm keeping there at more of a close to room temperature. But right. for like for example, like for my blood pythons. I've always liked keeping blood pythons for a couple of reasons. Number one, I just like how they look. But number two, I kind of like the challenge. I mean, they've gotten easier with time, but I like dealing with the the challenges they they present. Um, In any event, though, I have invested, you know, a couple of hundred bucks into my thermostats for them because I don't want them having any problems. I've spent a lot of time, put a lot of care into them. And not to say that more than any other animal, but... I've been using um, the uh, Spider Robotics um, mm-hmm. thermostat. Yep, yeah, the Herbstat. Yep. And I've never had one problem. And it just, it keeps, it's a proportional thermostat. So it keeps that, well, it, there's an so option. Let me, for let me ask you a question. Yeah. I totally agree with you. But would you take, would you go out, buy a Porsche, take it off the lot, drive around with no insurance? No, of course not. Of course you wouldn't. So what's your insurance with that, with that really nice? Uh, the thermostat. Exactly. And you I think that, it. yeah, that's one of the things that people forget. It's like, oh, right, listen, this frog might cost you 20 bucks in an expo, but if you really want it to thrive, you have to give it the captive conditions that it's that it needs. You can't just stick it on your dresser somewhere and expect it to thrive absent of all those, those, those conditions that it's going to need. Absolutely. That's why every single one of our starter kits comes with the digital thermostat or the thermometer. Jeez, I'm going to get that mixed up the whole conversation. <laughs> that's okay. Every single one. Because it's the number one reason why they're not going to eat. If they're too cold, they're not going to eat. So, um, you know, I can't stress that enough, whether it's a digital temp gun, which I have one in every room, literally. I have one in every room because I always lose them and look for them. So I figured, screw it, I'm just going to buy a lot of them. Um, put them in every single one, every single room, so I can't lose them all. Now, I love them. We, in terms of 
other you know components into captive husbandry what, what's your attitude towards lighting specifically uvb now i've heard different things about i mean obviously uvb on say like an albino might potentially pose a risk i mean what are your thoughts on on uvb exposure i'll be honest with you in particular packing we don't use any uvb uh we don't use they're they're in rack systems so they're getting lights from this front of the rack system but they're not getting any direct uva uvb I've never had a problem. Um, you know, we do really, really well supplementation, but I've never had any issues with them. I mean, I always tell everybody, is it, is it going to hurt them? No. You want to buy a nice, U, you know, UV light? Absolutely. It's going to make the tank look great. They can only benefit from it if they happen to use it, but they're not a basking species. They're more of a burrowing species. So do I think they really require that to live a happy life? No. But again, it's not going to hurt them. There's not going to be ill effects. So if, if uh, you know, the pet keeper or breeder wants to use them, then I say go for it. Now, what kind of supplements would you recommend? I use, and the key with frogs, uh, dart frogs as well, uh, we rotate. So we use Rapashi mainly, but I also use Mineral. So we will rotate the Calcium Plus, uh, the Mineral, and the Supervite. But we also use, this is another big one, that people tend to forget, vitamin A. People forget a lot of vitamin A and they go, oh, well, there's vitamin A and calcium plus. There is, but it's it's not the same. If you look at the amount of vitamin A and calcium plus versus Rapashi's vitamin A, it's not even close. Apples to oranges. The concentration is ridiculously low compared to the vitamin A in, in the regular just by itself. Uh, and it's also retinol, which is a performed uh, uh uh, I try not to get too crazy scientific with it, but basically the frogs can digest it better. So the vitamin A by itself, the, the nice one with the dart frog on the on the, uh, the Rapashi bottle, that's the one that should be used, but it shouldn't be used as often because vitamin A is actually fat-soluble. Any fat-soluble vitamins are not going to break down as fast as water-soluble. So an important thing to remember, you probably heard this way back in a high school class you were half asleep in, but ADEC, vitamins A, D, E, and K, those are all fat-soluble. So you can actually overload and, and give too much to these, these animals. That's humans, any, any animal can get too much of it because they just can't get rid of it. The body can't metabolize it out as quick. So you need to be careful with the vitamin A. They need it. It's very important. Uh, for a lot of body functions, especially the mucus on the tongue, which helps the frog actually eat. So if you see a frog trying to eat and they're, like, missing the flies or they're missing the, uh, the crickets, they're not catching them really well because they don't have a lot of mucus on their tongue. And they're probably deficient in vitamin A. Uh, it also does a lot of other things, egg production, reproduction health, uh, you know, way other different things. But you definitely need it. Uh, it needs to be in your in your rotation. I would probably say once every two or three weeks you get dust with no, all good points. I actually do that. I, I use um, I use Rapashi Calcium Plus at every feeding except for maybe like once every th- three or four weeks I will add some of the, the, the Rapashi Vitamin A. And I think that what a lot of people don't realize is, I mean, you, you basically you nailed everything. Um, vitamin A is, uh, it's a fat-soluble vitamin, so yes, it can be overdosed, but the same thing with vitamin D, etc., um, 
What people don't often realize is that not all supplements are created equal. And because no. Rapashi's product contains the preformed vitamin A, frogs can metabolize that. Now, I read a paper a while back because I was having an argument with somebody and I wanted to settle it. But um, a lot of the supplements that are available use beta carotene as a quote unquote vitamin A supplement. Now, yep. frogs can't metabolize beta carotene into vitamin A. Nope. So that's no, completely, yeah. So that's completely useless. Um, which so, I believe is the source of vitamin A in the calcium plus, which makes yes. it basically useless to the frogs. Um, they does have, Almost. yeah, it does. It does have that in there, but it does have some of the pre. I'd have to look at the, the side of the uh, side of the jar. There's a very, very minute amount. Yeah, I believe because I, I was having this conversation with somebody a week or two ago, and I believe it doesn't have to be formed in it at all, at least on the label. Um, I don't have a jar in front of me to double check that, but I, I'm pretty sure even if it's in there. It's not enough to be sufficient because because that particular product was not made for frogs. Um, that was actually made for more of your leopard geckos, bearded dragons, um, animals like that when they originally formulated. From what I hear, so the frogs weren't really uh, you know that's which is why they came out with the vitamin A for frogs because they didn't want to leave it out. It's very important, but that's exactly why we we put vitamin A in again every single kit. Because you wouldn't believe the amount of people that don't have it. They don't even know it's a thing. Do I know a little bit more about that? I have a whole video on um, YouTube, too. If you guys are listening, you want to know more on supplementation. I have like a 10, 15-minute video goes all over that stuff and uh, in a lot more detail. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's one of the things that also people really have to get a handle on is your feeding regimen and your supplementation. And also, you know, gut loading and feeding appropriately sized prey. I mean, I see a lot of oh, yeah. people, they'll have, a, you know, a small frog and they will just stick this massive dubia or, or a pinky mouse in there. And it's like, dude, this thing, just because it can fit in its mouth doesn't mean that it should. Oh, yeah, because especially with Pac-Man, they're going to get it down. Well, they might throw up their stomach and then guess what? Game over. They might get blocked. I mean, prolapse, uh, again, it's another thing that I, I hear on the forums, and um, I, I don't think that people realize that it, it is a serious problem, and the literature, uh, there's a nice chapter on, I mean, I use this a lot, but um, uh, Mater's Reptile and Amphibian Veterinary Medicine oh, and Surgery. Oh, I know that book very well. Yeah, yep. it's got a nice chapter in there on prolapse, and it, 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 for some reason, prolapse tends to repeat itself. So you don't want to give any fuel to that fire, and um, it's not necessarily something that you're going to be able to resolve at home on your own. I mean, I've seen some horrific posts out there where people have done this weird, like, home surgery to try and reverse the prolapse. And it's like, you have to imagine you're doing this with, with no skill, no anesthetic, no medications for pain, no, no uh, post-surgery treatment. You imagine how horrific it must be for this animal to in endure the prolapse in and of itself, let alone you trying to put it back put under. Put it back in there and doing it. Well, yeah. Well, oh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy. That's just one of those things that I, you know, that I hear. And, um, you know, I don't think that people realize that just because it's, you know, they, they, they are little eating machines, but they're not machines. They're, they're living things and they, they have the potential to be very, very fragile. And if you don't take care of their needs, just like any other species, you could have some serious problems. Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, maybe a bit of a controversial topic, but I mean, do you have an opinion on mammalian prey? 
I mean, I know that there's videos. I, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of spectacle. I think that, you know, showing something off just to be a spectacle is not productive. And there's a lot of YouTube videos of frogs pounding like, you know, adult mice and people get twisted and whatnot. I mean, do you have an opinion on mammalian prey as just as a supplement or as a primary feeder? Well, first off, I don't think I don't think there's any need for ever feeding live prey. I just I just don't see the need for that with any type of frog. They'll eat frozen thawed. Uh, so if you're feeding a live prey, you're, you're just you're just doing it to, to just to do it. I just think that's inhumane. But um, as far as rodents uh, prey go, pretty much all the breeders that's that is the staple. Really? Uh, that was our staple here for up until about six months ago. Um, because that's what I was told, you know, that it's no problem with it. Just do it. Uh, and I just wanted to do better. Uh, and I had no problem spending the money to do better for them. So we've actually added silver sides um, to uh, everybody. Adults get silver sides. Uh, the babies get obviously smaller cut up silver sides. Uh, go through about 400 night crawlers a week. Um, that's just a supplemental appetizer for these guys um, that they just get to feed on. We also um, use, I go through about 10 pounds of the raw shrimp when we feed it, which they get that as a treat like once a month or every other month just to mix it up. So, And then, of course, we do rodents as well. We still do rodents. Then, but keep in mind that the need for rodents for a breeder is different than the need for rodents for a keeper. They have much different re requirements for reproduction, the, the usage of fat and, and the proteins and things like that to, to keep up with the breeding and, you know, the, that nice full-figured body, um, you know, to, to go through everything healthy. So it's a little bit different, um, I would say. You probably don't have to do that at home. And people are rodent every now and then. It's not, it's not a problem. I mean, I think that rodents are... What makes them nice is they're a whole prey item. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to take that back. I'm going to take like most of that five minutes back. When I, every time <laughs> I said rodent, I mean mouse. Okay. Mice. Yeah. Mice yeah. will be used. Mm -hmm. We do not use rats. Um, rats are actually ridiculously high in fat and can lead to fatty liver disease. So I should clarify that. Um, when we meet rodents, we feed all mice. Now, do you have a preference for... I mean, I've I've heard... It's difficult because there's not really one governing body that necessarily quantifies the nutrients that are in animal feeders. I've seen different studies by different laboratories where they'll give the nutritional content for a cricket or for a mouse or whatever. I mean, do you have greater success with, say, using, say, like a pinky mouse as opposed to like a retired breeder or, or a sub-adult? I find that um, they do better with more frequent smaller meals. You know, rather than shoving a huge meal into them and not feeding them for two, three weeks. Um, a, it's more interactive for me. I really get to watch the frog and how it's interacting, how it's acting. Is it doing good? Is it interested in the praise? You know, the items we're giving them uh, really kind of works more hand-in-hand -hand with them. And I just think smaller is better for them over time because they're not always going to be running across these huge prey items in the wild. They're going to eat whatever comes you know, around them, and generally it's going to be small insects, maybe, a, you know, a small mammal here and there. Um, there's different studies out there, dietary things that they found gut content, so it was really interesting on some of the species. But 
Um, I don't see no issues as long as it's mice and hairless mice. That's all we use is hairless mice. Okay, that was going to be my next question because I know when they pass it, that hair is just, ugh. <laughs> it makes yeah, such a mess. Yeah, did surgery. We did surgery uh, with one of the vets that we work with. I did the anesthesia on the surgery, and it had a uh, an impaction, a very big impaction. It was an animal that I got from somebody. Uh, you know, this was three, four years ago. That it was impacted. It was ridiculously impacted with hair, uh, and it was it did fine. You know, it was a really interesting surgery to do in a, cele- a celiotomy is what it's technically called to go in there and unpack them and sew them back up and the animal ended up doing fine but uh seeing that i'm like no i'm never i'm never gonna feed hair it's not uh you know i don't want to go through that again i don't want the frog to go through that again yeah it's it's pretty horrific i mean i remember in in the early days when i when i kept them you know i i the amount of information that we have again, I, I go, I often go on these tangents about like, you know, a thousand years ago, but, um, conventional wisdom at the time said, well, you feed these things, whatever they want, because they'll eat it. And I remember feeding, you know, large mice. And then just what they would pass was just, it, it, it fouled the water and it was just like oh, yeah. impossible to clean up. And, you know, you started thinking like, well, is this really worth it? Like, am I putting this animal's welfare at risk by having it pass this nasty hairy blob you know or should i just maybe feed it yeah feed it you know more frequent small meals that are varied as opposed to like feeding this gigantic overweight mouse like every other day absolutely and we just started uh doing our own dubious here so in the future we're gonna be adding that into the mix as well just uh, we got a few colonies going so it's gonna be a while but um, I just really like interacting with the frogs. I just don't want them to sit there and, you know, okay, what color are we breeding today? You know, I, I really enjoy going in and feeding on them and working with them. So if I can mix them up stuff and really kind of get to watch them, that's, that's fun for me. Now, if you could pick one species and uh, one or one morph, what, what would it be? Uh, uh, I knew that question was going to come. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, don't I have to answer it. I, I just... No. Um, I got asked that a ton at the zoo I used to work at. We did lots of uh, um, different tours in the vet department. I ran the vet department for 10 years, and that was always the number one question. What's your favorite species in the whole zoo? Um, and, God, that was hard to choose. But I guess if I had to pick, <clears throat> pardon me, a, um, a species in frogs, oh, man, there's a bunch. I guess if I could only have one, it'd be Cranwell. If that was that was it. They said, "Hey, you can only have one species." This is it. It would be not a particular Cranwell, but any Cranwell I want. Any specific, Mike? Any morph, or you just you couldn't pick a morph? I couldn't pick. I like the mutants. I, I just love the variety of the mutants. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I st- I still like greens. I like regular greens. I think camels are cool. Um, so to me, that's, they're all different. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's so much to choose from. I agree with you. It is kind of hard, but hard to pick. I mean, like with me, like with dart frogs, even some of the more common species I have, which actually aren't that common anymore. Um, I mean, I have I go on and on about my uh, my my uh, patricias, and they're just kind of my favorite. They're really bold. They have nice coloration. I mean, at the time they were you know kind of like the go-to dart frog, but now I don't see them as much anymore, but they'll always kind of be my favorite. You know, maybe it was just because it was the first that I really had success with, the first that I had breed, but that doesn't mean that I could just give up everything else. You know what I mean? I'm not going to give up, um, 
you know, I'm not going to give up my erratus. I'm not going to give up my, um, uh, my uh, epipedibates and thonii. I'm not going to give up, you know, it's, it is, it's so hard to pick. Yeah. You could, you could spend a little few more seconds in that tank cause you like them a little better, but yeah, yeah. you wouldn't, you wouldn't want to go without the rest of them. I mean, like as far as dart frogs go, I love erratus. Like I just got some of those albino erratus that came in and my God, I'm tickled pink with them. They're yeah, I've heard bold. about those. I yeah. just love watching them and uh, got some El Oros right next to them. I mean, amazingly bold for, for dart frogs and, and I mean, the paint jobs are awesome. So they're, they're my favorite dart frogs in the collection. I've noticed that like the erratus, they tend to like flash mob. Like if you keep, yes. if you keep them in like a small group, you go up to the vivarium and they're like, they're gone. You don't see them. And then you put the food in, you put, you put some fruit flies in and all of a sudden they just kind of like emerge from every corner, converge on them and then just like disappear. Yep. The buffet's open. They yeah. go eat and they go and then they go back home. Yeah. It's one of my, it's one of my favorite. That's what's really endearing about them is that behavior. Um, I mean, we're kind of reaching the end here, but I just wanted to cover one more topic before we wrap up. I mean, we talk a lot about the, you know, the nutritional content of feeders and obviously um, certain feeders, I guess what we could call like incomplete, meaning insects don't have calcium. They need to be supplemented. I mean, with the exception of mice, which are really more of a whole prey item. I mean, what, what would you consider like a healthy gut load would be for someone at home who wants to make sure that their feeder insect is getting, you know, enough nutrients in it that can pass on to the frog? I, the gut load that uh, I use is rapache. I also add uh, things like carrots, sweet potatoes to the mix. <clears throat> I use um, some water crystals uh, that are calcified with the calcium as well. And, you know, the key that it's fresh. You know, same with the Dubia colonies. If you're going to put produce, put, put good fresh produce in there. Stuff that's chock full of vitamins and minerals that they're going to be able to use. Yeah, I only use fresh. I have... Um... I do a lot of carrots, I'll do sweet potatoes, and I'll do collard greens. And the dubias I'll give oranges to because I've just kind of noticed that they will kind of breed better if I throw some orange in there. They and, do, uh, but they can cause gout in your reptiles. Really? Okay. Yes, so okay. be careful with that. That's interesting. You can use citrus with dubia roaches and it will make them boom, but there's actually a lot of breeders, and I'm not sure if there's actually studies out yet, but... Uh, if you look it up, it will cause gout in certain, like, I think mainly they were looking into it at beer dragons because, you know, beer dragons do be go hand in hand. Um, but, yeah, it, it was an issue. And they found it was linked to people who were giving a ton of citrus to make these colonies just boom like crazy. So, <clears throat> pardon me, it's okay to give. Um, but, like, for me, my doobies, I give it once once a month. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's, that's good because that's about what I'm doing, too, is maybe, like, once a month with the oranges. Um, that's interesting because in, in Mater's, there is, uh, I believe it, may, it might even just be a paragraph, but it does talk about, um, you know, the dangers of feeding citrus to reptiles. I mean, obviously frogs are not going to eat citrus because they're all technically... No, obligated. but it's all about the acids that are in that yeah, citrus that yeah. gets transferred through. That's interesting how it gets transferred directly. I mean, that's it's funny because we always think about, well, what good can we be putting into a feeder? That's an excellent example of what bad we could be potentially putting into a feeder. Yeah, you want to stay away from dark greens too, like no broccoli, yeah, or spinach, yeah, yeah, spinach um, because they're calcium, calcium binders. Yep, yep. Yeah, like it's well, even, it depleted. It yeah, just binds to it. I mean, even people so who then have, they can't use it. Yeah, people who have kidney problems. Um, like I have some family members that do have kidney issues, and with them, it's actually it's actually no sweet potatoes and no spinach. Yeah, 
Yep. So it's definitely something you want to discourage. But no, that's 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 really good to know about the citrus because I know a lot of people who do rely more heavily on feeding citrus. And um, I'm glad that you you know were able to uh, enlighten us with that piece of information because um, anybody who's out there maybe overdoing it with the citrus, you might want to kind of rethink that and um, you know make sure that your feeders aren't getting too much of the wrong thing in there. Absolutely. Cool, cool. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on before we, you know, before we kind of bring things to a close here? I guess uh, the one thing I would like to touch on is, is a message for everybody out there in these, these obviously, Corona has massively changed uh, the reptile industry at the moment and shows and uh, moving more towards online. And, and there's so much going on behind the scenes that, I, you know, I wish we could share it with all you guys, but it moves so quickly with the feeder shortages from superworm shortages to cricket shortages and, and all this stuff that's happening. So I guess my, my main message is to people who are getting either getting into the hobby, because um, there's a lot of people that if you're not going to a show, you're now coming online and you're ordering. We get tons of, of new customers every single week, new clients we get to teach, and that's phenomenal. Uh, but A, do do your research. Um, C, you know, have that backup plan on the shelf. You can't get uh, crickets or dubias or whatnot. Get that, like we talked about earlier, grub pie, samurai on the shelf, for in case you have a hard time and you can't get insects. So you have something to last here for two years to feed your animals if you're doing Pac-Man frogs. And one of the bigger things is communication you it was more important now than it was ever it's always important but now that everything's online and everybody who does online is, is a lot busier keep in mind guys that you know there's a lot of great companies out there you know josh's frogs frog daddy uh, you know the, the, all these there's tons i mean any herb um we're not amazon you know this is a live animal you're working with we don't have 15 million employees we are all pulling 14-hour days to, to make sure the best gets to you. Um, so a little bit of the communication and a little bit of uh, understanding goes a long, long way to our long, long days and making sure everything goes smooth for you guys. So um, hopefully we get to see some shows come back into play here uh, later in the year, earlier in 2021, and we could get back to seeing everybody in person. But um, I guess that's the one point I kind of wanted to relay is we see a lot of people who are treating, and it really irks me, treating these transactions like it's an Amazon product. It doesn't have a heartbeat. Uh, we've had a few people have frogs shipped to the hub where they don't even pick them up. They don't want to be bothered with it. They don't want to be inconvenienced because the weather was too hot. Um, Are you serious? You know, I'm, I'm serious, yes. This is happening. Wow. And it's not just happening with us. Um, and it's and people know it's going there. You know, We actually had a FedEx employee that worked at the hub. She called me. And she said, look, they're not coming. I said, no, they're not coming. They told me flat out. I, she goes, what do you want me to do? I said, well, we, I'll pay to ship it back. I said, but it, now it's Thursday. You know, we might get this. There was a delay getting it there. She goes, well, can I adopt this? You absolutely can adopt it. Absolutely. We spent over an hour on the phone with her, trying to go over everything for her. All the care tips and this frog is doing phenomenal. And the FedEx lady adopted this frog to save its life. Um, but this is happening. And people have to understand a little bit more that we are not uh you know prime here uh shipping through through the frog depot or any of these other companies that so we do our best and 
I know they all do their best. Uh, I know that for a fact. Um, but people who are new in the hobby, not quite as experienced with the ropes as far as when things get shipped, uh, where they go to, the temperature requirements, things like that, you know, just pay a little bit more attention to that. Read those terms, pages, the conditions, and understand that you're buying something that's not only live, but it, it is an exotic. It is something that is a little bit more specialized and and uh, really put your extra extra yard into making sure things go smoother, and we'll do the same on our side. Definitely well said. I mean, I think 15 minutes on the phone before you make a purchase is a lot better than two hours on the phone after you purchase. And I think that, you know... Absolutely. Yeah, do, you, do your research. I mean, listen, everybody, every guest that I've had on this show, I've always had a great rapport with because you know what? There's communication, just like you said. And, you know, you can't look at a living thing as a disposable commodity. And I think a lot of people get lulled in by thinking, well, I can have this immediately overnight and then realize, well, wait a minute, I really didn't know what I was doing. But that story about the lady from FedEx, that that's really great. I mean, it's nice to see a positive thing kind of come out of a bad situation, but yeah, I, I, I can't, I can't, I mean, I can believe it because I have no faith in humanity anyway. That's happened to <laughs> us three times now during wow. this corona. It's, it's, it's not been a... You know, and then, and they always try to, to, to do some excuse or whatnot, and uh, it's just it's just crazy. So, you know, just take that extra step, but take the extra step afterwards. Like, if you are having an issue with an animal, it's okay to admit that you need help. Call the company that you went to, the breeder, go over everything, and don't do it three weeks later. Don't wait till this frog is not eating for two to three weeks and then call and be like, hey, you know what? It's half on its side. I think it might be dead. Its eye might have blinked. Like, be a little bit more proactive with it. I have literally two cell phones for, for one person being myself. When you call us, you're only going to get a hold of me. You're only going to talk to the owner, the person who breeds the frogs, people who ship the frogs to you. You're going to get a hold of me. And there's no reason you can't. I might not get it that second. I might be on with somebody. I might be with the frog but i definitely call everybody back within 24 hours and talk to you personally so be a little bit more proactive if you're having an issue hop right on talk to me let's figure out what's going on let's get the problem fixed worst thing you do is go to a facebook page and start talking about it agreed talk to the breeder <laughs> talk to the breeder whoever that is you know whatever company that is you know they, they want to hear from you if they're worth doing business with, they want to hear from you, whether it's good or bad. We actually send out um, uh, feedback emails on every single item that goes out to our site that's purchased, from crickets to rapashi to Pac-Man frogs. I read every single feedback that comes back, every single one that people send to me. I don't delete it. I read every single one to see how we could do better and what could be you know, improved upon. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, listen, Pat, we got to wrap up. I know you've been a real trooper. I know you're not feeling too well. Um, but I, I want to thank you for coming on the show and really sharing a lot of things. I, I learned a lot, you know, listening to this, um, listening to our talk. And, um, Pat, you want to just give everyone your website real quick? Yeah, you can come visit us at uh, thefrogdepot.com. Obviously, we have a YouTube channel as well. Uh, we do have an Instagram, which I do a little bit. I'm trying to do a little more with. Um, but uh, the Frog Depot and all three of those you can visit us at. All right, everyone. Again, I want to thank Pat for being on the show. 
And this has been uh, a really enlightening episode. I like to kind of go outside of the comfort zone. I know we talk a lot about dart frogs, but understand the podcast is really out to focus on all different amphibian issues, regardless of what the species is. So, Pat, thanks again. All right, everyone out there, catch you up next time. 